Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 110. We'll begin with a brief summation of Jeremiah chapters 12 through 15 and follow the consideration of racist language, feelings, and snowflakes. In the previous episode, I spoke of Yirmiyahu as a prophet by day, poet by night, and chapter 12 definitely promotes Yirmiyahu's poetic side. Poems dominate the Book of Psalms, but the poems that feature there, the Psalms, follow a particular style which Yirmiyahu deploys here with great power and efficiency. Yirmiyahu uses metaphor, but he also turns to God, in a sense the opposite of prophecy, where God turns to humans. Yirmiyahu presents himself, or the people, and portrays the day-to-day struggles and challenges facing the faithful. Like the all-too-familiar dilemma, I guess you could say, of the wicked man who gets the rewards that are supposed to be set aside for the righteous. And the metaphors flow. Yirmiyahu got bars. But God got bars too. Quote, If you race with the footrunners and they exhaust you, how then can you compete with horses? So besides providing a little insight into sport and athleticism in the days of the prophet, we get a sense of the challenges facing Yirmiyahu. God tells him, if he cannot withstand the wicked with a lowercase w, he should gird his loins because there are wicked with a capital W and they are relentless. And the people you least expect to come after you, like kinsmen and your father's house, they will come after you too. This theme of tzaddik veralo, rasha vetovlo, the righteous suffer while the wicked prosper, is a preoccupation of Iov, Job, the psalmist, as well as Ecclesiastes, but it has its roots in even more ancient documents. A Sumerian text from the 18th century BCE, which scholars refer to as, quote, a man against his gods, has the righteous man in the center of the drama turn to face his gods to ask... No, God, please, no! 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 As does an Akkadian text scholars often refer to as the Babylonian Job, which was composed during the Middle Babylonian period, or an Egyptian text, which scholars refer to as, quote, a debate about suicide. Hmm. This is a prevalent theme. What's interesting is to whom this complaint is directed. Yirmiyahu is like the Sumerian, as they both turn to God to inquire, What is the meaning of this? And God replies with a dark vision of the ruin which is to come, and the assurance that if the Jews shape up, if everyone shapes up, even the Baal worshippers, God will forgive and restore. <laughs> Chapter 13 begins with a parable and follows the prophecy of wrath and calamity. The parable, however, reads like it actually happened because of the realistic touches. Here's what I mean. God wants Yirmiyahu to go buy a linen loincloth, wear it, but not get it wet. One can almost imagine Yirmiyahu going to town on market day to find the linen, haggling, you know. And then God wants Yirmiyahu to go out to Prat and put the loincloth in a cleft in the rock. Prat is not the Euphrates, as many Bibles render it, but referring instead to Wadi Farah, which is near Anatot, a dry riverbed that runs east-northeast to Jericho. Yirmiyahu is supposed to leave the loincloth out there, buried in the ground, but then, quote, After a long time the Lord said to me, Go at once to Prat and take there the loincloth, which I commanded you to bury there. Okay. 
And what do you know? The recovered loincloth is tattered and filthy. It's just a mess. Just like the wicked people who refuse to do God's bidding. They too will be shredded and dirtied and not be good for anything. This is a lesson that both speaker and listener can easily appreciate. Yirmiyahu will do this again with a potter's jug later in chapter 18. Yirmiyahu then moves on to another kind of parable in the form of a calamitous prophecy. He tells the people that every wine jar should be filled with wine, to which the people respond with, <laughs> But the reason is because God will fill all the people with such a drunkenness that, quote, I will smash them one against the other, parents and children alike, declares the Lord. No pity, no compassion or mercy will stop me from destroying them. Oh, damn! And Yirmiyahu will not be standing by and watching this ruin like it's some Roland Emmerich disaster born. He will be crying while the crowns are knocked off the heads of the king and queen, mother of Judah. And when the Jews take a moment to wonder why this happened, the answer is quite clear. Quote, it is because of your great iniquity that your skirts are lifted up, your limbs exposed. Can the Cushite change his skin or the leopard his spots? Just as much can you do good who are practiced in doing evil. Oh, damn. Chapter 14 continues in Roland Emmerich's style of the drought, and other nobles of Jerusalem will send their servants out to the cisterns for water, and they'll return with empty vessels. Quote, they are shamed and humiliated. They cover their heads. The animals are driven mad by the lack of rain, and though Yirmiyahu calls out to God, God says he will not answer because the people are continue to go astray. Quote, when they fast, I will not listen to their outcry. When they present burnt offerings and meal offerings, I will not accept them. I will exterminate them by war, famine, and disease. Oh, damn! Yirmiyahu does not give up. He begs for God's mercy on behalf of the people, even if they do not ask for it themselves. But chapter 15 begins with a pretty resolute dismissal by God. Quote, Even if Moses and Samuel were to intercede with me, I would not be won over to that people. Dismiss them from my presence and let them go forth. Now, fuck off! How shall we fuck off, O oh Lord? Which is pretty much what God says next. If they ask, go forth where... Tell them to go forth themselves, quote, those destined for the plague to the plague, those destined for the sword to the sword, those destined for famine to famine, those destined for captivity to captivity. Oh, damn. Yirmiyahu then turns to his own bitter fate, quote, I have not sat in the company of revelers and made merry. I have sat lonely because of your hand upon me, for you have filled me with gloom. Here, though... God has a word of consolation. He will preserve your meow so he can go on party pooping and being an all-around downer. <laughs> Thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. In many of the previous episodes, I spoke about the Tanakh as having a voice, a usually angry one, and clearly discernible attitudes on specific issues, the most prominent being idolatry. You know, I'm not going to relitigate the whole idolatry thing here. That's not the point. The Tanakh regards it as a fundamental evil in the world. Blah, blah, blah. But it's a useful tool, a handy heuristic or shorthand, because it also does a lot of the heavy lifting when you're trying to organize the world and understand your place in it. It's the classic us versus them schema, defining the in-group versus the out-group. So at its most basic level, they're the believers in the one true God, who has a long list of instructions for proper behavior, who's generally disappointed by the fact that his people will fall short of expectation. That's us, by the way. And then there's everyone else, worshippers of wood and whatever, child sacrificers, you know. But the Jews had to live alongside all these wood worshippers, so they probably had to keep their displeasure on the DL until they became sovereign in their own land. 
But there were also issues around ethnicity. Rivka, remember her, Itzchak's wife, mother to twins Esav and Yaakov? She hated Hittites. She kvetched to Yitzchak, quote, I am disgusted with my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries a Hittite woman like these from among the native women, what good will life be to me? Ouch. Imagine if you replaced Hittite with Mexican. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. There were also tribal tensions within the Jewish people. In Judges chapter 12, if you remember, Yiftach is rallying his fellow Giladites. These are the Jewish folks who are living on the east bank of the Jordan, south of the Kinneret, in what today would be the Erbid district of northwest Jordan. Yiftach is rallying them to fight against the Ephraimites, who are living basically in the same general area, just on the western bank of the Jordan. Now, the Giladites, descendants of Menashe, are also related to the Ephraimites, except because they dwelled on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, they evolved slightly different speech patterns. So, as the story goes, during the fighting, Yiftach's men set up checkpoints along the fords of the Jordan River, and when folks would try to cross, they would ask the person to pronounce the word shibolet, or shibboleth. Because, you see, Ephraimites had a little bit of an impediment around the sh sound. They said sibolet, which would result in them being killed on the spot by the Giladites. And imagine if Canadian immigration officials asked folks to say out or oot before being admitted to Canada, or guys at passport control at Logan Airport ask folks to say car park. But where the Tanakh is largely silent is on the matter of race. And when I say race, for most folks in the present moment, that's another word for skin color. The Tanakh does comment on skin color, but is that racy? Well, so what? But what's wrong with being sexy? I mean, there's no sex sexist. Okay, racist. Racist. Yep, well, it's racist. Well, more than a little. And the thing is that when it comes to race, the Tanakh gives the impression that it's race-blind. There's an acknowledgement that humans have different characteristics and practices, but according to Genesis, we all started with one human. We're all created in the image of God, so whatever outward differences may exist between humans, we're all the same. There are many nations and languages and beliefs, but there's only one race of humans. Could this be the first expression of multiculturalism? I'm proud to say that our culture that is based on Christianity, on Judaism, on humanism, is not only better, far better than what I see as a barbaric Islamic culture, and that we should fight. Thanks for that, Geert. But what of blackness? There are a number of instances where Tanakh mentions skin color. Adam, made of Adama, which is probably reddish-brown soil, was probably dark-skinned. He definitely didn't look white like Jesus does in most Renaissance paintings. Then there's the whole business with Ham or Ham and his son Knaan and Noach's curse in Genesis chapter 9. And somehow this is supposed to relate to Ham's dark complexion, but... As we discussed in episode 4, there are loads of problems with this story, like the confusion around what Ham did and why it was Canaan whom Noah cursed, and what does Ham's blackness have to do with any of this. Genesis never really mentions that Ham was black, although I guess if we're really forced to racialize his descendants, his son Canaan fathered the Canaanites, and there's also the Ethiopians and the Egyptians and the Libyans, so again... What does that really say about Ham's brownness or blackness? Not much, except for folks later on, good Christian folks, that were looking for some justification for enslaving black people. Hagar and Keturah, Avraham's other wives, were of Hamitic descent, so they were probably people of color too. And as I discussed at great length with Tema Smith in episode 35, when we discussed Zipporah, Moshe's Kushite wife, 
Her skin color merits nary a mention until Aharon and Miriam slander her for no apparent reason. And even then, they don't diss her because she's black, but because she's Kushite. Kushit. And this is perhaps semantics, as Kushit is probably another word for black, but then again, you know. So their racism only gets Miriam punished with leprosy, but there's a bit of a cautionary tale there. Keep your racism to yourself. And, and then there's the Queen of Sheba, who arrives in King Solomon's court in 1 Kings chapter 10. She was either from the Arabian Peninsula or Ethiopia, and as according to legend, she slept with Shlomo and sired a dynasty that eventually produced Hali Selassie, who inspired Rastafarianism. And then there's the Song of Songs, where in the context of a celebration of young love, the female calls to her lover, quote, I am dark but desirable, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like Solomon's curtains. Do not look on me for being dark, for the sun has glared on me. And we'll get into this more in episode 211 sometime in June of 2021, but let me say now that the English translation, well... I hear you're a racist now, father. <laughs> what? What? How did you get interested in that type of thing? You said I'm a racist. Everyone's saying it, Father. Should we all be racist now? What's the official line the church is taking on this? Oh, no. But here we are now in Jeremiah, and in chapter 13, verse 23, Yirmiyahu asks, quote, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may you also do good that are accustomed to do evil. And, I'm, and first I'm thinking, well, it's a fact, no. I mean, Ethiopians have dark skin. He can't change that. As I discussed in the previous episode about the Queen of Sheba, Kush is located south of Egypt in the area historically known as Kosh in Egyptian, Kusu in Akkadian, Kusa in Persian, which actually maps onto present-day Sudan. Kushites are dark-skinned, and that in the Tanakh, Kushite or Kushi, is a synonym for dark-skinned person. Well, isn't that just a fact? It's just a word. And maybe I would agree with that, except for the second half of the verse, quote, then may you also do good that are accustomed to do evil. So let's put the pieces together here. A leopard has spots. A kushi is black. So that's who they are. The, that outward characteristic cannot change. But you, who are outwardly evil, you can change. You can be the leopard that changes his spots or that kushi who can change his skin color because evil is not immutable. You can be good even though you've done a lot of bad. So Yirmiyahu is creating two categories here in this verse. The first, immutable, unchangeable, natural. And the second, mutable, changeable, constructed, and defined by choice. Now, I'm not going to commit the logical fallacy to then impose this binary onto the other binaries, namely good and evil. I don't think Yirmiyahu implies that the leopard and Kushi are somehow evil because they are, they, they are who they are. I, I think what he's saying here is that evil is not inherent to a person no matter what or how badly they choose to behave. But I get rankled by the word Kushi because of how it is used today. And I know that some folks would tell me to get over myself and stop being such a special snowflake about how the Tanakh uses black and Kushi interchangeably, and that the Tanakh is not racist, and that the word Kushi isn't racist, it just describes a black person. Kind of like Schwarze in Yiddish. It just means black, literally. Except that it doesn't just mean black. Kushi is a derogatory term because in a society that privileges whiteness, blackness is second, lower, bad. If you don't believe me or write me off as some kind of social justice warrior, I'll refer you to the Israeli judicial opinion from a January 2007 case where a driver, whose name is not important, called a security guard Kushi. 
Justice Yitzchak Melinov wrote, quote, The term kushi is considered in the eyes of society as a derogatory term and an insult that is designed to cast aspersion on an individual because of his dark skin color, to mark him as an outsider or an, an inferior to people of lighter skin color. This is, in essence, a racist term meant to humiliate and put down the plaintiff only because of his membership in the Ethiopian community and his black skin. And as such, it falls within the alternative fourth definition of defamation in section one. And if that wasn't convincing enough, I refer you to Kiryat Arba's chief rabbi, Dov Lior. Uh, he made some comments in February of 2012 when he compared then U.S. President Barack Obama to Haman and later referred to Obama in the same army radio interview as that Kushi and called for increased settlement activity in the West Bank to, quote, eradicate the jungle. But come on, bro. Black person is black. Why is that racist to point that out? Well, first of all, it's not up to me as a white person to decide how a black person should feel about a word that reduces them to one aspect of their humanity. I think a person gets to decide for themselves what's comfortable, and that includes pronouns too. But if that's not good enough of an explanation for you, then consider that using that kind of language is just insensitive. When a black person tells you that kushi is racist, that should be enough. But then you get this counter-reaction. The white man who is confused when folks have the audacity to tell him that he can't say whatever the hell comes to his head. Not only is he confused, he's offended and he's hurt by the correction. Who's being the snowflake now? So earlier this month, a guy in Portland, Oregon, apparently drove next to a Muslim couple for more than 20 blocks, swerving into them as if he meant to hit their car, shouting, quote, take off that fucking burqa. This is America. Go back to your fucking country. Well, as you can imagine, the folks in the car didn't really appreciate being, uh, you know, menaced in this fashion. They filed a complaint with the police and the guy was arrested and charged with a hate crime. How dare you come in here and lecture me? How dare you, sir? How dare you come into this office and bark at me like some little junkyard dog? And at his arraignment, he burst into tears. He claimed that he never meant any harm. Quote, I never tried to run into them. I was just going to work. I never tried to follow them. I never tried to make contact with them after the fact. When he was asked about all the yelling, he said, quote, I guess my fear and paranoia, I just yelled out. I don't go on social media looking to hate on people. I guess my ignorance and my stupidity is why I opened my mouth and I shouldn't have, and I claim full responsibility. Except that as part of his bail, the judge ordered him not to go on Facebook until trial because a quick perusal of his profile revealed that he was in the habit of posting discriminatory comments. But what gets me about this story is his tears. He was clearly upset. But I don't think he was upset, you know, having a moment of contrition that broke him emotionally about, you know, his overt racism. I think he was upset because he got caught and now he was going to have to deal with a poop mountain of consequences. He went on to say, quote, I don't know who you are. I'm sorry I blurted out what I blurted out. My paranoia, my fear. I don't hate you. I don't know you. Blurted out? Like the defendant in that, that 2007 Israeli court case or the quote-unquote rabbi of uh, Kiryat Arba, it's not like all these guys were minding their own business when suddenly all kinds of racist nonsense just gushed uncontrollably out of their face hole. By the way, if you want to watch the guy ugly cry, I posted the link at thenextjew.com. I, I don't recommend it. I think it's safe to say that in like the world of the people of the book, words matter. Words distinguish us humans from overwhelming number of animals. Words can express the abstract in a way that images cannot. Words connect us to others. But most important, words carry their context with them. 
And the context for Cushy is one which is painful for black people, and white folks, myself included, need to acknowledge and accept that. So for that reason, it is a word that is out of bounds to us, white folks. Not only that, we don't get to be part of the process or conversation which decides that that word is derogatory. Sorry, too bad. Bristle as we might against being told no. And I know it hurts, precious snowflakes, but that's how it is. Like the leopard has spots, that's just how it is. Deal. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out TanakhCast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 111 when we continue the book of Jeremiah with chapters 16 through 19.